Welcome to Making Lemonade with Wet and Kels. On today's episode, we have Holly Joe, who is a friend of Whitney's. So I'm going to let her introduce her as well. Oh, I love Holly Joe. <laughs> She's so sweet. She came on and told us all about her son, Easton, and his journey with biliary atresia. We had uh, another guest that shared that, Samantha, a couple months ago mm-hmm. about her daughter. And so it was so fun just to listen to a different story of kind of the same thing because not every diagnosis looks the same. Mm-hmm. Um, and to hear Easton's fight for five years until he was able to get his liver transplant. Um, and Holly is such a great advocate for organ donation. I love her story, how passionate she is about sharing um, how they honor their little donor Jack and remember him and write letters. And I just love her heart and I love like the spirit she carries about her and her gratefulness for what they went through and how they've overcome it in their life now. You know, she really mm-hmm. is like just a woman I really, truly look up to. She's such an incredible person and mother. And I'm so excited to share her story with everybody. Am I supposed to say something? Because I feel like you did a really good job. And you're just going to have to cut that part out. <laughs> just just say, yeah, me too. Thanks for listening, guys. And we'll end it there. Okay. Because yeah. I'm like, honestly, you covered all of it. No, I loved it. Sorry. I just kept no. rambling. <laughs> no, you're good. <laughs> I, too, love listening to Holly Jo. Um, she definitely has like a spirit about her that was awesome and very uplifting. Um I could have probably listened to her all day. So yeah. anyways, I hope you guys enjoy this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Our guest today is Holly Joe, and we're so excited to talk to her. She's going to talk to us about her son, Easton, and his story and about organ donation. How are you, Holly Joe? I'm good. How are you? Good. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your family and kind of where your story starts? Okay. Well, I'm Holly Joe Karen, and I live in Richmond. So I'm out there kind of in cow country and we love it out there and we're just trying to raise our kids out there. I've got, I'm married to Rusty. He was, um, I met him in high school, so that was fun. Um, and we have four kids. Our oldest is Stetson and he is 18. He just graduated. I can't believe my baby's graduated. Um, and then our next is Easton and he just turned 15 and then our next son is Nixon, who is 11. And our next is our daughter, Swayze, and she's eight. So fun. Yeah. And like three of our kids are almost the, the same, same age. age. Yeah, yeah, which exactly. is crazy. I think Easton, what we decided, was a year older than Carter. Nixon and Brody are the same age. Yep. And then Swayze and Tay. Yeah, they yeah. were the same age. Yep, yeah. that's right. So that's right, because wasn't she born in 13? 14, January oh, okay. 14. Yeah. So yeah, they're just barely because she's November. So yeah. they're only a few months apart. Yeah. Aww, yep. So fun. Yes. Oh, we just love your guys' family. Uh, well, I love when I get to come see you because I miss, I miss seeing you guys a lot. So yeah, yeah, it's been really nice. And I'm so excited to be here to talk about it. It's, it's good to have the awareness. And I feel like that's part of, of me as a mother being able to give back is to anytime I have an opportunity, I kind of jump at it. Yeah. Uh, so when I heard about you guys' podcast, I was just like, I need to be a part of that. And then when I heard the other uh, mother who had um, a child with the same uh, disease, I literally just, I kind of, you don't hear it very often. Uh-huh. And it's so rare that I was, I was very attracted to it and just couldn't turn it off. And I was just so excited. And obviously I had seen you in the fall, but I was just so excited to be able to have that opportunity. And I never want to turn that opportunity down. So thanks for having me today. Of course. (laughs) Yes. So, um, a little bit of our backstory, Easton, who, as I said, was our, is our 15 year old. When he was born, he 
uh, actually was very healthy uh, from what they said. When he was two months old, he started having some issues with um, his bilirubin. So he went yellow and was jaundice. And Dr. Armstrong, who works at Primary Care Pediatrics, um, I used to work for him a long, long time ago before I became a mom. And so he knew me and he just says, oh, he just doesn't look very good. And so he had me do some tests and um, we went down to primaries and they told me, uh, and it was a like long day of grueling tests. It was kind of crazy, the things that they did just to be able to figure out if they have these things. It's, it's interesting. Modern day technology is amazing though. Um, and we went down there and, uh, he indeed had it. And they said we had to wait for about a week and a half because his, um, Billy Rubin was so high, he most likely would bleed to death. So we had to wait for about a week and a half. And then we had the surgery and we didn't know much about it. Um, one thing Dr. Armstrong did tell me, he goes, please do not go home and Google this. Yeah. (laughs) Go home, take some family pictures and just be with your family. And I think part of that was, Um, When he said that to me, I didn't really have a good feeling, but I just knew. And we did. We went to Willow Park and, I mean, Mac Park, and we took family photos and just spent uh, a really good weekend together. But it happened very, very fast. Tell us the diagnosis he was given. Biliary atresia. So it's basically where your gallbladder doesn't form. It's almost like a Hershey kiss. And instead of actually growing into a gallbladder, it actually stops and sometimes uh, babies will either you can you can miscarry or sometimes they die of SIDS and you don't understand that it's it's basically their uh, bilirubin backing up and it makes their blood toxic. Okay. And it just it kills them. So, um, yeah, he he got diagnosed with that at two months of age, and we went in for the surgery. Um, so he was two months old. We had just blessed him. We had literally just blessed him. He's just this teeny tiny little nugget and. He went through the surgery and halfway through the surgery, um, the surgeon came out. She was actually the surgeon that did the conjoint twins in Salt Lake at the time. So she, we didn't know who she was, but people kept saying, do you know who she is? And I'm like, I don't even know who these people are, but his team was amazing. It was like a team of surgeons that you can't believe, but we were thrown into this world of surgery and primary children's and just all these different things, not really even understanding what biliary atresia was, to be honest. Cause I didn't do any digging at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, but we did, he did make it through the surgery. And um, what was the surgery? It was called a Kasai surgery. And it's basically where they go in and they reroute all of their insights to basically filter out what your gallbladder does for you. Like when you're younger, it is a very vital organ. Like okay. they're like, it's a vital organ, like your brain and your heart when you're little, which I did not know that. Because I'm like, well, people get it taken out all the time and survive. And I guess that's where I was very confused. But again, at the time, I just didn't ask a lot of questions. I was just trying to get through mm-hmm. each day. And they did the surgery, which was a Kasai. And it basically rerouted all of his insides to basically filter everything through so that his liver would stop getting so much of that, the brunt of his mm-hmm. body being kind of backed up in, in a sense. Um, during his surgery, uh, the doctor came out to me and said, He's lost a lot of blood. He's bleeding to death. And this is his second blood transfusion. And I'm going to go back in and just try to close him up. There's there's nothing more we can do. He's going to bleed to death. Mm. And she walked away. And I had we had our family there. And Rusty and I were told that we were going to go in and see, see him. And within 10 minutes, she came back and said, uh, the blood transfusions are working. 
things have turned completely around. And so we were just, it was, it was a very emotional day in general and he got through it and we started watching and things started getting better. But he, from even that point, even though he survived the surgery, it was kind of up and down, up and down with you're in the hospital for two weeks, you're home for a week, you're in the hospital for two weeks. Um, and that really went on from two months until he was five. And really, they said, we're going to put him on uh, the organ donation list, even when he was two months old. And I thought, how does this even work? He's a baby. I didn't know a lot about organ donation. It had never even crossed my mind. Because as a mom, you literally look at things and think, organ donation is never going to affect me. All my babies are healthy. I'm a healthy person. I make healthy choices. That's never going to affect me. And um, they just started talking to me about needing a liver transplant. And I said, I don't understand. He just made it through the surgery. And and his um, doctors just said, this is like a Band-Aid. There, there's no fix for this except for a transplant. And I just remember being like, okay, what do I need to do? And kind of just went in mom mode of learn everything I can about this disease, learn everything I can about transplant. And um, he went on and off the list from the time he was that two months of age to five years old. And it was like we had said, it literally was you were in the hospital and then home for maybe two or three days and then back in the hospital because his stomach would literally fill up with ascites, which is fluid. And it would just fill up to a point where he would look like he was carrying triplets and he was this little five month old baby and he was just huge, but then they'd go and drain it and he'd be better. But that's part of what your organs do. They filter everything out. And his, even though his surgery was working, it wasn't doing all it needed to do. So he was kind of up and down, but they considered that he should be on the list. Um, so when I say that he was on and off the list, something to remember is it's kind of a catch 22 with organ donation. You have to be sick enough to be on the list but you can't be too sick to not receive it. And it literally kind of put my brain in a whirlwind as a mom. I, I couldn't even wrap my head around that because I said, okay, they're sick enough, but then if they get too sick, they take them off because they won't survive it. And so you're like, you have to have this hair of a space of when they're sick enough, but not too sick. And if they got fevers, if they got a cold, they were pulled off the list. So I had to, hey, someone's got a cold and they'd give you the rundown of, he gets a cold, he could die because he didn't have any immunizations. He couldn't, they were immunocompromised because they could, their bodies couldn't handle immunizations that a healthy child could. And I just remember being like, okay, so we kind of lived like how COVID was. Like when COVID came around, I kind of felt like I was <laughs> ready for the world. It That's how I lived. I, my sisters would come see um, him through the back sliding door. They would look at him and wave. When Rusty would get home from work, uh, he would literally get undressed in the garage. And my dad had made him a solar shower. Like when you go camping, he would get undressed fully and have a shower in the garage and come home because anything that he would get could kill him. Wow. It was just, it was kind of, so I look at kind of like when COVID hit, it was kind of one of those PTSD things when you're like, this is what my life was like for five years. You just, you're kind of a hermit. I didn't go to church. My family and uh, Rusty's family grocery shopped for us. When we were in the hospital, um, Rusty's and my family took care of Stetson and would bring him there and Stetson would sleep there with us. And when Rusty was off work, he'd come up there. And it was just kind of one of those things that life literally went up and down for five years. When he, uh, when he was five, they found these tumors inside of his liver 
So he did really good. He was on and off the list for that five years. Um, the whole, I'm sick enough, I'm not sick enough for five years. But it the Band-Aid with the Kasai worked for that five years. And they would tell us the longer you can go, the better odds of getting a, a donor is. The younger they are, it doesn't happen um, or it doesn't take as well. And so we got to age five and he was actually doing really well, but then he started having all these issues with breathing. He couldn't breathe. And um, he felt like everything from what he explained, and he was five, felt like it was pushing up towards where his lungs were. So they went and did all these tests. Well, they found that he had all these tumors all over his liver. And his doctor, who's Dr. Book, she said, you know, my gut feeling tells me that this is cancerous. And I just remember thinking, not on top of everything else. You know, we're going to be removing this organ. Why does this matter? And she says, you know, when you go in and you do any kind of um, biopsies, you have a chance of having those cells spread to the rest of their body. And we need to get him on the list. They were everywhere on his, and she goes, they weren't here the last time we did the scan. So they're fast growing and it, it might be cancer, but we don't know what kind. And so I just remember thinking, okay, what next? And so um, we, decided to, we weren't getting any options of donors. Even when we were on the list, we weren't getting phone calls. We weren't, we weren't getting any organs and Rusty had had this dream that he was a perfect match. And so he went to Dr. Book and Dr. Book says, there's no way you're a perfect match for this. There is, you know, usually their ports are going the wrong way and it just, it just isn't. And I was pregnant with Nixon at the time, so I couldn't even be considered a candidate. And he just says, you know, I'm not going to sit here and watch our son die of what could possibly be cancer. And so he goes, get me tested. And if anyone knows Rusty, he doesn't step inside of a hospital. So this was, this whole life change was very hard for him, but you won't ever find him in a hospital. He, and he's afraid of needles. So he went through that grueling process and he was a match. So we had set the date uh, for August 30th and I mean, sorry, July 30th and everything was ready to go. Um, we had gone down to do some, testing, um, one last test for Rusty and Rusty had a team of doctors and Easton had a team of doctors. So they have two different teams when they do an organ transplant and Rusty's team, um, had decided they didn't feel like they should move forward with it. They felt that something was going to happen to Rusty and, um, they just didn't consider it an option anymore. They wouldn't really give us a reason why. And, uh, Dr. Book was really frustrated. She's this little, when I say barely five feet, she is this little, just spicy little thing. And she goes, you hold on one minute. And she walked out the door and came back in and says, they're not moving forward with the transplant, which was a week away. And Rusty was just so defeated. I was defeated. And I just thought we're going to lose him. He just, he couldn't breathe with all those things. It was actually pushing up on his lungs and he now had oxygen. He had a pick line. He had a feeding tube. He wasn't eating. He was just slowly dying and he was so sick. Um, and so we were kind of back at square one. She's like, you're going to have to wait for a, a donor. And they never like gave you an answer to why. Uh, the only thing that she said was that the group of physicians said um, that they were not religious. They were not religious people, but they felt that they were going to lose them on the table and they chose not to move forward. There wow. was no physical. Mm -hmm. I mean, everything physically with Rusty was 100%. But after the fact of when everything was done and transplant was over, Rusty told me that he had had dreams that he was going to pass away. He had gotten extra life insurance policies that I didn't know about. Oh he, wow. But he says, I wasn't going to sit here and wait. But he 
said, I knew I wasn't going to leave that table. And I just remember being oh like, why gosh. didn't you say anything? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He just, what a selfless act of love though, to yeah. think you had a dream like that and you were still going to do it. Yeah. Well, and he just wasn't gonna, yeah. and he's like, I wasn't going to tell you about it, but it was kind of those, those feelings of you. And I think all of us as moms know, we would lay our life down for our kid Yeah. and watching him for that five years go through. That was really hard. We almost lost him three different times and it was really hard. You plan funerals and it, obviously it, nothing ever came about it. But I, I remember my sister Jackie being so so upset because I had written an obituary and I asked her to keep it and she wouldn't. She says, no, it means you're giving up. And I said, no, I just, the reality of this is he's not going to live through any of this. His body's tired. <laughs> and you watch them go through the things that they go through day after day. Mm-hmm. And it's traumatic. Yeah. And it was. It was hard watching my baby go through that every day and not knowing that he was ever going to live. And I remember his doctor coming to me and saying, you have to realize that death is not the worst thing for these little babies. And I looked at her and I thought, but I'm his mom. Yeah. And she said, you have no idea how much pain these babies are in all the time. And so at age five, I thought, wow, you know, he smiles. He does all these things, but he, he didn't know any different. He didn't know what a day of pain without pain was like. He just thought that's what life should be. And he was always with his brother. And the only time that he smiled, and I'm not kidding, was when he was with his older brother. He just smiled and Stetson would go and put him in like a little um, hamper and he'd have his pick line and his feeding tube and Stetson would have me hold that and we'd go around the house and go down the stairs and Stetson would be like his little driver. And mm. But that was our life. We just didn't know anything different. But, you know, when you realize that these kids that don't have organs that work, they just are so sick. And I don't think when, when people think of organ organ donation, they don't realize what a gift you're giving to these kids that literally have never had what healthy kids have. Mm-hmm. They get to go and they get to do all these things that we take for granted as parents and moms because we think that they just are healthy and happy, and they're not. These These babies and these kids that live through these diseases and are waiting they they hurt all the time. They never feel better. And so I think part of that with organ donation is that if if people could understand the difference of just having that conversation with their families, mm-hmm. that's kind of one of my missions is that if we can get people to talk about it with their kids, like I've sat with my kids and I've, I've said to each one of them and Swayze's eight And I've sat and talked to her and I said, if something were to happen to you, would you want to give part of who you are to someone else to make them live a better life? And I think I asked her when she was sick and and she, when she was six and she says, yes, mommy, I want to do anything I can to make someone's someone like what Easton, what someone did for Easton. And so I don't think there's a right or a wrong way. I'm not trying to like preach to, to parents to be like, you should do it this way. But I definitely think it's something that we should ask um, 
the older they get or when they get their license. You know, I talked to Easton about that because he's getting his permit. And I said, have you decided what you're going to do? And he goes, yeah, I'm going to be an organ donor. And I didn't want to ever assume because everyone has their right. But you just, if people can just sit down at dinner tonight and, and literally have that conversation, I feel like I've done my, my job. If one person can just go and say, I've checked that box. Because when you, when you think about the statistics, I have some here. And currently there are 106,013 people waiting for an organ. And when you think about that, 100,000 people Mm -hmm. are waiting for an organ. So 17 people each day are waiting um, for an organ. And every nine minutes, another person is added. So when you think about from the time it takes you to put your dishes away, another person is added to that list, right? And then every donor can save eight lives. And Mm -hmm. it just goes to show you that when we think about like us as people, what we possess and our children, they have the gift of saving eight more people. Yeah. And I, I look at that and I realize that there's so many different things that we can do with that. And I, one thing that I've really struggled with um, in this whole process, which most people, I don't think they get how this is possible and that's okay. I'm, but I'm just here to share that as well as survivor's guilt. Mm-hmm. You know, I, Easton has named his donor little Jack. He did that when he was five. He came to me and I had said, your donor. And he, think of this at five. If any of us have kids that are five, how old is Skyly? Three. Okay, three. Yeah. So think in two more years of Skyly saying to you, Mom, this person has a name. They had a dog. They had a brother or sister. And that's what Easton did. He said, I'm tired of calling this person donor. Whoever they are, they had a brother. They had a dog. Maybe they had a dog. Maybe they had a favorite color. Maybe they had a brother or sister, but they're not just a donor. And I said, well, okay, Easton, what, what do you want to do? And he goes, I want to give him a name. And the only thing that you're given, which other people can attest to this, is male or female, age, and how they passed away. And sometimes that's not even the passing away. Sometimes that's not even an option either. So the recipients get to know this stuff as well? Because like for us, I know my stuff, right? For me, but I didn't know that as a recipient. So what information did you get? Just that. Just like male or female, the age. And, and what what organ organ needed. went yes and like their region where they were I didn't even get that I got wow. regional information yeah were you uh, at primary children's mm-hmm. and I know you were at primaries mm-hmm. yeah so you're telling me donor services that was the only thing you guys got that's yeah. the only thing I got so and so tell me what you got Same so thing? literally they had walked in to the room and said uh, we have the candidate um, they have opened the candidate and this the port's going the right way. Cause that was the other part with Easton is his port was going the wrong way. Oh, okay. So he had actually gotten two offers. Um, one was a week and a half before, um, and his, uh, port was going the opposite way. And all we knew is he was a 14 year old male that had uh, been in a drowning accident. Oh. So, but then they, again, they said, so get some good night's sleep and you're heading home. You're not getting an organ. We're not doing a transplant tomorrow. Oh. And so we went home and, but again, that's, that's part of it. You go and you get ready. They prep you, you're in the room and you're just waiting and waiting and waiting. And it's like 3 a.m. And they'll come in and say, they'll wake you up and say, this donor is not a match for Easton. And I just remember being like, they're not a match. 
and it's because they're not the port's not going the correct way. And so then when you go back home, and then the next thing when they said we have a possible donor and you have your pager because back then I don't know if currently they have pagers anymore. To be honest, yeah, does anyone do. know? Do yes. It? And they're like the old fashioned pagers that like people would have in high school. Okay. But the hard thing was is like they would malfunction all the time, so you'd have it on the side of your bed. And I don't know if if she had the same experience, but it would go off in the middle of the night and it was always at night. I swear it was always <laughs> at night and you'd get up and you'd call and they'd say, Oh yeah, no, that we didn't give you a call. Aww. It was a malfunction. So you'd try to go back to bed. Oh, that only happened three times to us. Oh, but- only three times. <laughs> <laughs> like what a surge of like, Oh yeah. I don't know. Anxiety and anticipation. It was, and, it was, and you carried and it everywhere with fear. you and you're thinking, I'm just waiting for this thing to go off. Yeah. And I can still remember to the day, even though we had gone back home the week before with Easton, when we had the first offer with a cadaveric donor that didn't work with the 14-year-old male, we went back home, and I just remember being like, that was the worst feeling ever. You know, you go back home, and you're just sitting, and you're like, my life could be a week and a half to living a better life. And here we are, and I remember um, I was just at home, and uh, the kids went fishing, <laughs> They, I let them go fishing and I cannot recall who they went with. And now I feel really bad, but they went fishing. So Stetson and Easton, I got permission for Easton to go fishing. And I'm like, he needs to go do something with his brother. So we let him go fishing and Rusty and I were sitting at home. And, um, again, I was pregnant with Nixon and Rusty was just doing stuff around the house. And I was watching of all movies, my sister's keeper. Have you guys ever seen that? Yes. Oh. I'm in the middle of bawling and Rusty comes in and tells me the pager went off, the pager went off. I'm like, what? And he's like, the pager went off. I'm like, I'm sure it's just a false alarm. And so he calls and he gets off the phone and he turns around. I'll never forget the look on his face. He says they have a donor. And again, you kind of have that feeling because where we had done it before too, Rusty got denied being a donor. We had had our first attempt. So I thought we're going to go down there. And so we actually stopped at Wendy's, which you're not supposed to do. And I'm like, you and Stetson are getting a frosty and you're going to eat. And Rusty's like, he shouldn't eat. I'm like, you know what? Nothing's going to happen. We're going to get there and we're going to turn around. We got down there. My whole family came down and stayed and, um, in the apartment, not the apartments, but the hotel across the street, they prepped them. They all came in and took pictures. Cause you just never know. Yeah. I mean, they tell you, even though odds are great, you never know if that's the last time you're going to hold your kiddos. And my sister, Jackie was sweet enough. She came in and took pictures for us and, so yeah, it was really, really hard that day. It was hard because I didn't, I didn't think I was going to see him again. And he looked so scared, but he just looked at me and said, mommy, if I don't make it through this, I don't want to go through this anymore. He's like, I hurt so much. So I just looked at him. It was really hard. It's a lot because I haven't thought about that day for a while. Sorry. And Rusty just said, I want to carry him in. And so Rusty carried him in and Stetson was on his way because again, we had had him go home because I thought, why have him stay here overnight? And so Rusty's mom had driven him back up and she was at the top of the hill and they were at the door and they said, we have to take him now. And I said, you have to wait. His brother has to see him. And luckily they let him come through and he just comes running through the doors and Stetson was so sweet. So Stetson would have been eight. So he would have been yeah. our Swayze and Taze age. 
And he just looked right at him and gave him this big hug. And they're trying to tell me they can't touch each other. And he gives him this big hug and he says, I'm going to see you in a little bit. And he goes, I love you and gives him the biggest hug. And he turned around and you could tell he was sobbing as he walked away. But Easton goes, I'm ready now, mommy. I'm ready. (laughs) And that's all he needed. And they took him away and they closed the doors. And I just remember I started screaming and just, and I did. I just said, you got to go get him. He's not going to come back. And Rosie's like, we have to let him try. And I just sat and I was literally like, Rusty was like holding me back. And there's some of it I don't remember, but I just kept crying and saying, please just let me have him back. Just, just take him home. And, we'll just take him home and just be together one more night. And they wouldn't let me through the doors. So I, I calmed down. And my dad walked down the hall and he, picked me up off the ground and he says we just gotta get through it so we waited and we waited and we really thought that it was gonna we were told it was gonna be a long surgery and they had come out and told us all these things like we've removed we've removed the his liver things are looking really good um he's only had to have one blood transfusion things are looking really good and i had met his doctor dr kim and he was this short little Asian guy. He's so sweet. And he had prepared me about how long it was going to be. So he, and he goes, you will not see me until the transplant's over or unless something happens during transplant. So they had come out and told me, so we're sitting here just waiting for these updates. The nurses would come out and you sit there and you're waiting and you're waiting and you're waiting. And the nurses came out at the first hour, gave me an update. They came out at the second hour and said, we have now, you know, placed the new organ It's looking really well, but he's starting to bleed a lot. That was the last thing that we heard. And then on hour three, which was not even supposed to be the halfway mark, I see Dr. Kim walking towards me and he takes off, kind of like you see in movies. And I know it sounds really cheesy, but he just looked at me in a way and he took off, he took off his surgical cap and I looked over at Rusty and I said, he's gone. He's because you were told it was going to be this long So I just broke down and he's like, everything is perfect. And I said, he's gone. And he said, everything went perfect. It went beautifully. And I said, it's, it's only been three hours. I said, I don't understand what's happening in my mind and emotions. And he said, you couldn't have found a more perfect match for this little boy. And he goes, I have never seen this happen. And I'm so grateful. My family was around to hear this because he said, I've never had I've never, I, we didn't have to use any of our graphs that we had ready to go, our cadaveric graphs. It was just like that was meant for Easton. And he goes, he's in recovery. I'm like, I'm sorry, he's in recovery. And he's like, it went perfect. And I just remember him saying it was almost like this was meant for Easton. It couldn't have been more perfect. And he said, and that's it. He's like, he, he's going to be great. You can see him in about 30 minutes. And I just remember being like, in that moment, I just wanted to go find his mom. So I went to the nurse and I just said, can you please tell me where she's at? Is she here? Is she? Because, see, we weren't told any of that information. We didn't know what region. All I, all I knew was that it was a five-year-old little boy who had drowned. And that's all we knew. And so I'm like, I don't even know if his mom's here. And if she's here, I have to find her. And so 
it was that guilt of my baby's okay and hers is not. And other people who haven't gone through the other side of it don't understand that it's a heavy thing that we carry as well. Because, yes, you've watched them slowly dying, but someone's tragedy has finally made your baby happy, and they're going to not hurt, but you can't find them. And so for me, I had this really hard time, even after it was probably three years after, I still struggle. I still struggle. But that survivor's guilt is a real thing. I had two cousins, and you know this, but I had two cousins who dealt with the same thing, but theirs did not survive. Um, my cousin Chantel, her daughter Tatiana, had a heart transplant, and she died just after transplant. And my cousin Justin, his daughter, passed away of cancer and she was not able to be an organ donor. So her mother actually in her honor went and donated a kidney and that was her way of giving back. And so organ donation is very big in my family because one, the three of us have been able to be touched by it, but it's me being on the other side of that mountain. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And so sometimes for me, when I see, the two of you moms and you, what you guys do here is such a great thing. One, I think we all have our own way of healing. And for me, the only way for me to heal from that survivor's guilt, mother to mother, even though I don't know who this mother is, is try to talk about little Jack as much as I can. Try to honor him as much as I can. Have Easton honor him and talk about organ donation because one, that's, when you look at those statistics of people that are waiting, like for instance, with kidneys, this is just last year, there were 90,483 people waiting. Okay. This is just a, for instance, and only 24,670 received it. Now that doesn't mean all those people passed away, but when you think about that, that is 65,813 people who did not receive an organ that needed it. So when you think about there's there's more stats that you can look at online, but when you just think about that number, 65,000 people waited for something to save their lives and didn't get it. And a thought that keeps coming to my mind when we talk about this is there's a common misconception with organ donation. I had this said to me multiple times, and this was actually my husband thought this too. He asked the doctors before, he's like, just make sure we can have an open casket and that he'll look okay. And the doctors are like, he'll look just fine. Like we don't mess them up. Yeah. I don't know how to say that appropriately. So I'm sorry. But so after people would say, you donated Bane's organs. And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, well, we thought he would look different. And I'm like, no, they don't make them look different. They're very. I was afraid of that too. Mm -hmm. And I remember they asked if we wanted to donate her eyes, like her corneas. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I know like, because then her eyes will be gone. Like for her casket, she'll just look weird. I don't want that. And they're like, no, no, no. And they told us what they do. And anyway, I, I had that mm -hmm. fear also. And I also had the fear of like her being alone on this table, just 
cut open everywhere, you know, like, but you learn that they honor these babies mm-hmm. so much and people that are donors, they just care for them, take care of them. And I was so grateful to get a letter from a nurse that sat by her side and loved her for me and told me about that experience because like you said, you can't go through those doors. Yeah. You don't want them to go through those doors without you. It's not fair. I don't want to be there to see that, but I also don't want to be alone. Yeah. And so it's such a hard thing to think of just letting your child go, mm-hmm. you know. And then another thing that I kind of want to say, this is obviously just the way I feel. I haven't talked to many people about this, but um, for me with organ donation, I can't stop. I couldn't stop Bane's death, right? Like Bane's death was going to happen. I could not stop it. Um, But what I can do is I can take the little pieces of him that can help somebody else. Yeah. You know, and I know he would have wanted it too. So when they came to us and asked us, it was not even a question. You know, I can help these families. I can't help my situation, but I can help these families. And that's amazing. You know, and I think most people feel that way to an extent, even though it's the hard part. But, you know, um, we just why wouldn't we want to help somebody? Why would we not want to help somebody to not feel what we feel? Right. Yeah. You know, well, I think, too, what's hard is that after I we had talked about this just before we started recording, trying to find loopholes and ways (laughs) of trying to figure out who people were. So there's part of me that really admires that you, you guys, I don't know. Do you know any of the people? I know uh, one person. But is that your choice or is that on That the was other? their choice. See, yeah. and it's, it, what about you? What? I know I have talked to everyone but one kidney. And was that your choice or theirs? I don't know. I, I should write a letter. I yeah. just haven't. And they've well, never no, wrote a letter. Well, so that's what, so that on my end, that's what's interesting because we write a letter every year. For the first three years, I wrote it at every milestone. And um, then we, we actually, so I would send, so I have a journal for him. And I gave them my phone number. I gave them my address. I gave them, I said, I don't have social media, but if you need to get a hold of me, here's the social media you can to get to me. I, and what was really, what I appreciated on my end, her name was Barbie and she's at donor services. She literally said, I can tell you if they receive it and if they accept it. Otherwise I can't give you any other information. I said, okay. And she literally will say they accepted it. So to this day, 10 years later, they are still accepting my letters. I still keep my journal that is his but in general, it's it's that whole idea of, I just want to meet you so that when I can look in your eyes and hug you. And so for me, that's hard mm-hmm. because I've tried so hard, which it's okay. That's her right. I'm not yeah. putting anyone down. No. But it, I struggle with it all the time because yeah. I think if you could just see how healthy and happy he is. But... I also have to respect that because I don't know the situation of how she lost her son. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if I could handle that. I would hope I would be strong enough because I look at you women and I think they've been through the worst thing a mother could possibly go through. And they're trying. Yeah. They're trying to be happy. They're trying to live their life and they're trying to honor their kids. 
in what they do, right? Mm -hmm. And so I just think one day maybe. So that's kind of like if someone were to ask me what my wish would be, Mm -hmm. over millions of dollars it would be to meet his family and to know his name. Yeah. One, because I sit and, and think to myself, is your name Jack? Yeah. Is your name this? You know, you do that to yourself. But I also know that I'm doing my best every day just to try to be a better person and a better mom to just be able to honor any way that I can to that mother, if that makes sense. Yeah. I love that you are so passionate about that. Then you should still share with them. You haven't yes. given up hope. You no cling to that maybe yes. one day she'll be like hey this and is you know, my name and maybe i'll be 80 years old yeah and somehow i that's kind of like my dream yeah. maybe i'll be out in my rocking chair and i'm old and gray and i'll get to meet her or maybe i'll get to meet his brother or sister or someone yeah and have a tangible feeling of that's why when i hugged the sweet lady next to me and when i hug you guys it's just that tangible like I feel like I'm touching them through you guys. I yeah. feel like if I can hug you and touch you, that somehow I'm giving back to that mom Yeah. because you two have been there. Yeah. And I don't have that to be able to tangibly yeah. say thank you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And from a mother's perspective, it's one of those things that I, I always admire in you and I admire you because I look at that and I think, you're the epitome of trying to be a warrior for those that you've lost. And that's exactly what they would want. But it's that that feeling of we're doing the best we can and working through healing the best way we can. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, too, it's been a great thing to see both sides because, one, I think people look at it like, oh, you got an organ. You should just be happy. But there's a lot of tragedy on the other side mm-hmm. because of what you lived through before yeah. and what you're still you know, you you realize too, like Easton has meds twice a day, which we're very thankful for. We're 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 blessed. Yeah. He he went from seventeen meds to twice a day. Wow. It's it's a miracle. But you look at it too, and I think of him. I think of little Jack. Eight thirty every morning and eight thirty every night. Mm-hmm. So it's something that you just have to realize that you carry with you. But I've also learned through like the way that I'm trying to heal and the way that I'm trying to like talk about organ donation and be an advocate. It's kind of helped me heal to where instead of crying all the time, when I think of little Jack, I'm trying to be happy and express that. Does that make sense? Yeah, Mm -hmm. totally. So tell me how Easton did with the transplant. Like after, how did he feel to now? It's been 10 years. I mean, um, does he talk about it often? Does he? Do you know, he doesn't talk about it often, but it's very interesting because we were also told that he most likely, because of how bad his situation was, um, we were told that he had one of the worst cases of biliary atresia, which I'm sure it's different now because, again, he 10 years passed. I'm sure they've seen more nowadays. Um, but where it was so rare, he literally, we were told he'd be in the hospital for quite some time. and. He was out in three days, you guys. Wow. So he woke up when he wasn't supposed to wake up, wanted something to eat. We couldn't feed him. And they're like, he's supposed to be asleep. Like, you guys should have seen these nurses. He just woke up ready to live life. Mm -hmm. And all he wanted was spaghetti and honey nut Cheerios, which just FYI, he did not like any of that before. So I tease and I say that maybe little Jack liked that. Mm-hmm. You know he how funny that ate. is because Dylan that mm-hmm. got Teasley's heart did the same thing. He woke up feisty, 
ready to party, wanted ice cream. That sounds like Taisley and her ice cream. Which is Taisley's favorite food. And he ate it all. And Are he didn't serious? eat before that because he didn't have any strength. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know. It's, <laughs> ice cream? Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to take that as my little nugget because mm-hmm. FYI, people are like, um, I think you're reaching. And I'm like, no, you, I'm like, literally. Yeah. I, that was actually one of my questions that Easton do something different after yes, transplant. A hundred percent. That's all. Of so my mom was there and he goes, I just want honey nut Cheerios and spaghetti. And my mom's like, he doesn't even like any of that stuff. And when I tell you, he had three bowls of each and they're like, he's going to throw up. <laughs> you don't want him throwing up. He could open up his, and I'm like, I don't know what you want me to tell you. So they had to like, it's like he was grabbing at all these things. And I feel like too, that I just feel like when you have a part of someone different and I'm always going to feel this way. So no one's ever going to change my mind. You have a piece of them with you. And so I feel like they become a part of who you are. Yeah. Like internally. And so it just, but his healing was amazing. He was gone in three days. Um, let's see. So that was in August. We went in January to Disney World. <laughs> And they're like, go, go, go. And I'm like, they're like, get all the germs you can. I'm like, what? We've been living in this bubble. And they're like, go enjoy life. And I'm like, you want me to go where? I mean, but it was, it was such an, I mean, our life in that one moment of him being able to get healthy, it took from here. And we, it's the day I st- we started living. Right. I was going to say, like, now you guys are starting to live. Yeah. Well, and I look back at it. And so Easton literally you know, for the first little bit after transplant, which she'll know is that you literally are there about twice a week, just making sure that there's no rejection. And he literally did amazing. He just, they're like, he looks great. He's doing good. And then eventually it was like, we'll see you in a month. Then we'll see you in three months. And now, so like this morning, it's kind of ironic, but he went in for his blood work. So he does blood work three times. Um, no, let's see every three months. So he still does that and he's 10 years out, but it's, it's to watch, right? Cause your donor has a certain, they have certain tendencies in their blood, just like we do. And so his was higher for certain cancer risks. And so we watch for a cancer screening, which it, it is what it is, right? So we watch for those numbers and he has been perfect. He's been great. Um, and then once a year he goes down for a scan um, just to make sure his liver and all the flow looks good through all of his ports. And unless you saw his scar, you would not know the kid ever, ever. Well, yeah, he's got scars. I mean, when I say scars everywhere, he's got them between his toes. He's got them all over his head. But just from pick lines, right? Like they were just trying to keep these babies alive. And sometimes I look at all these battle scars and I'm like, and now it's if he's in sports and he gets a scar. I mean, people, you know, and I try to share as much as I can without being overwhelming, but really he gets to live. And I always look back at that day and I'm like, this was the day that we started living was when little Jack came into our lives and his whole life has just been, and he has just a different gleam about him too. You know, before I get, he was sick, but he just has this glow about him. And anyone that's been around Easton will tell you he has that about him. He just, you gravitate towards him. And I think a lot of that has to do with little Jack and the fact that he's just so happy, but he also has no fears. <laughs> he's lived a life of pain and he just has no fear. He just wants to go live life and he yeah. wants to just, and I think those kids are different too. I think kids that have, have been there and they've been near death so many times. I think they just live their life differently in a good way. Cause when they're like, I've been there, I've done that. 
and I'm ready to go live, which I think all of us could take that into perspective and realize when we're healthy, what a blessing that is. And when I see all these babies that get born and they're just so perfect and healthy, I'm just so thankful. And I'm so grateful to people as they're having all these babies because I think you're so blessed. You know, we don't realize as moms either when we have babies that I I, I realize Easton had something that was completely non-genetic and they still have no answers. Isn't that crazy? We mm-hmm. can Now we can tell why people have certain cancers. We have zero idea why people, why babies get biliary atresia. Zero. There's zero. It's just, it, it still blows my mind and it is what it is. But in general, it kind of is crazy because you look at it. And then when I had my last two babies, I just remember being like, is every organ there? You have your fingers and your toes. And it just it, like having a baby is such a miracle nowadays. I look at it and I'm like, I didn't think that way before, but I did after. And so it just, there's just so many things you can look at that are a blessing that way. Yeah. You, we almost take it for granted yes. when we have healthy babies because we just don't see the other side sometimes. Exactly. Um, was his tumor, she had cancerous? No. So that was another thing that was kind of interesting. So after, and of course we knew he was, everything was good. He was out of the woods and he was trying to wake up his nurses because they basically became my family. Like I still I send them all Christmas cards. They love me. I know all their babies' names, and their kids, because they become your family. You were there so often that you're like, you're basically my it. You're, you know, you had your favorite nurses and you, they would show you the best bathrooms and the best showers <laughs> and the, and the best places to go. You know, you just, you lived there, but these nurses walked in and, and they also knew that I kind of had a, I don't say medical background in a way of like, I was never a nurse or anything, but I had worked at doctor's offices, right? Like I worked at their nose and throat. I had had all these tendencies for medical. And, um, they said to me, do you want to come see Easton's liver? you'd be amazed at what it looks like. And I was like, yes, I do. And part of me, it was the mom and me that wanted to see, I want to know what made my baby so sick. It's almost like the mom mode, right? But I was also the medical part. I'm like, I want to see this. I want to know what was in there making you so, so sick. And Rusty's like, no, I'll stay with Easton. (laughs) So I walked down and they took me into this room and it was, it was just like a regular room. Like they were, it was so cool though. So they had it and they had dissected it. And when I tell you it was the blackest color you've ever seen. So think of like a nice pink organ, right? They're beautiful. They've got good blood flow. His looked like, I guess what you would call like a smoker's lung. It was black. And then when they had done the dissections, all inside as they opened it up were these. And when I tell you, what's about that size? A plum? Is that like a plum size, do you think? Maybe. Like a apricot. Okay, maybe an apricot. They were all over, just and wow. inside. So they had done the dissections just to show me the inside. They were inside. There was no cancerous cells. I didn't know this at the time because they're like, we're going to send this off. Mm. Can we also use it for uh, medical? Now I can't think of the word like research. research. And, yeah. and I said absolutely. So I signed all the forms, and it was maybe six months later. There was no tumor, like no cancer cells but they had no explanation as to why these tumors. So part of me, and again, this is me just being the mother that I am. I am a very spiritual person. I just feel like that fast-tracked him getting little Jack's liver because one, I can tell you right now that when Easton was growing up, I could not see past certain points. Yeah. So like with your kids, you think of, 
hey, they're going to lose their first tooth. I couldn't see past anything with Easton. It's almost like, I don't know if my mind did that because I was told he probably won't make it so many times that I shut that off so that I wouldn't hurt. I don't know. But I couldn't see him, you know, getting baptized. I couldn't see him having his first kiss. I couldn't see him getting his driver's. I couldn't see any of these blocks that most, you know, parents, I couldn't see it. So in my heart of hearts, I really thought, I always prepared myself of, you're, he's not going to make it. So just do the best you can, learn as much as you can so that he can be his home as much as he can. And I did. I learned how to do pick line care. I learned how to do feeding tubes. My dad would come with me in the middle of the night when he'd pull his tube out. And I learned how to do all of that. I did, they would do like these classes that you could watch from your room. I learned all the things I needed to learn for him so that we could be home a little, and when I say a little longer, a few days, but I thought I'm going to learn as much as I can to have as many more days because he's not going to make it. And I'm thankful for that because one, I was able to help with his care. So it wasn't always on me for that. Does that make sense? Even though I knew how to do it, it was more or less like I wanted to learn how, so I could be that advocate of, I'm going to give you the best life you can while you're here. And then I'm just going to have to say, I did my best and I'm just gonna have to cope. Yeah. So I love that you did that <laughs> just to be involved. And, in, and I feel like if you understand what's going on and what all the lines and ports and stuff mean, yep. it's not as scary. Yeah. And it's something you can handle, you know? Yeah. Ugh. Yep. Educate. That's another thing. Parents educate yourselves with whatever diseases your kids have. I know it sounds weird, but I went into like mom warrior mode. Mm-hmm. Rusty shut down a little bit, not in a bad way, but he was so afraid And I was, there were nights that I was alone and I cried a lot as I was holding him. But it's not that I didn't want people to see me cry. It was, I'm going to cry and I'm going to get it over with because in the morning I have to do this and make sure this scan is done. And I'm going to learn everything I can about why these scans are getting done. What are you doing? Why are you doing this? And to be honest, there were a few times that he almost got wrong doses of certain um, things in his uh, pick line. And, but it's because one, you had nurses who, again, were just tired, right? And I'd be like, is, and so I became the mom that before the whole being an advocate was normal at primary children's, I'd walk in and I'd say, hey, Sue, what you giving to him? I'm giving him this, this, and this. Okay, what doses? So I learned with what his body weight, but and I don't know why I was that way. But again, mm-hmm. he almost got three different doses that would have killed him. It was the blood thinners that you, when you oh. close off a, but what I'm saying is it's not because these nurses are amazing. So again, yeah. they are amazing. But human error happens. Human error yep. happens, right? Yeah. So that's what I'm saying is I was that mom and they, I thought these girls are all going to hate me and we adored each other, but it was, I'm not doing this because I think you're doing something wrong. I'm advocating for my son. So they'd come in and they'd show it to me and they'd say, do you want to check? They learned. Yeah. So before they would just give it to him, they would wake me up. Yeah. Holly, I'm going to give doses. So I'd sit up and you're exhausted, right? Yeah. I'd sit up and as tired as I was, I'm like, okay, and why are we doing this? Cause you, why are we doing this right now? You know? And, and it just became a thing. And I just, but that's how I coped. So that was my way of coping was to learn, learn, learn mm-hmm. and be involved. That was the only way I could get through. And I think that's how I dealt with that kind of trauma. If that makes sense yeah. is I just learned as much as I could and tried to be involved because I didn't know how long I would yeah. be involved. It's like so. the mom in us. We mm-hmm. still want to take care of them. Yeah. And, you know. Even when you can't, right? Yeah. Everyone else is. Yeah. Yeah. 
But I think that's also our right. If your child is getting treatment or help, you have mm-hmm. the right to know what's going on at yeah. all times. And yeah. what's, and don't be afraid to step in. Yeah. I think like if I've learned anything, right. Yeah. Step in, step totally. in and say that doesn't make sense. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I like that though. Mm-hmm. Why does, you know, why is this not making sense to me? Explain mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Explain it. Yeah. Cause you can ask that question. They can explain it. Yeah. 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 I think we've talked about that before. We have this like wall with doctors where they know everything and we know nothing. So we just mm-hmm. let them do their thing. But no, it's okay to have a conversation with them and say, I don't agree. Tell me why. Yeah. I want a second opinion. I yeah. want this, you know, mm-hmm. to voice our feelings. Yeah, with them. I just don't understand. Yeah. yeah. Like talk to me. Because we're so grateful for them. But it's yeah. also like. Do you know, it, that's funny that you say that because there was one time and it was when Easton was four and a half and he had a feeding tube. It just reminds me of this situation. And Dr. Book, who is Easton's liver specialist, who kept, I, she's the one that kept him alive. She's amazing. She wanted to keep his feeding tube in. And I said, I'm to a point where I think if you take it out, I can help him to learn how to eat. Because you got to remember when they have feeding tubes and from when he was so little, they don't learn that swallowing and things. And so I had these, she fought me tooth and nail. And she goes, well, I guess. And when I tell you she fought me, she goes, you're making a horrible decision. You're going to expedite him getting sicker. And I remember just looking at her and being like, Dr. Book, everything you've told me, I've literally done. Bible, everything you've told me. And I'm telling you, my gut is telling me that it's time for this to come out. And it's time for me to try to help him learn to eat. He is literally withering away. He's going to die of like, cause he would just be so sick. He would just throw up and then but you'd be force feeding him. Right. Cause it's on a feeding tube. Yeah. And I just had this, this mama gut feeling of like, I'm done. And it wasn't cause I was exhausted. I wasn't, I was like, yeah, he's not thriving. Mm-hmm. I need to do something. And so she fought me and she said, but you're his mother. And I'll never forget this. Cause every, everyone tells you this, you know him better than I do. So I guess I'm just going to have to ride on your coattails. But when this doesn't work, don't tell me I didn't tell you. <laughs> And then she says, we're doing an order to take out his feeding tube. And I went home thinking, oh my gosh. Like what I just do? Yeah, but then I went to USU and they brought these nurses down and put marbles in his mouth. And I remember being like, you're putting what in his mouth? He's going to choke. And they worked with him and they did all these sensory things. And in two months, granted, he had to have little things in between. But in two months, he was eating Never went back on a feeding tube. Wow. And she's like, how is he gaining weight? But I would call her and I would tell her about all these things. And so now she advocates for that. She advocates oh. for, hey, when you feel like they're not thriving because you're basically force feeding them and they're like literally, think about how you'd feel if you're being force fed yeah. every day for, for years. Yeah. He just had that. He had no gumption to eat. He didn't want to drink, eat nothing. And he just started thriving on that. Didn't mean he didn't go. He went to the hospital sick all the time with his ascites, with his belly. But when it came to food, we got him to eat. Yeah. He started eating and it was great. And so that's a good thing for moms to step up and be like, you are their doctor. You've mm-hmm. been caring up for him for five years and you've kept him alive, but I'm telling you I'm advocating and I'm putting my foot down. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a good way to put it yeah. is that moms need to advocate in a good, respectful way. Cause even though they're doctors, they're not yeah. same thing, mm-hmm. human error. There's not always going to be that. Cause I did. I, I literally, whatever she said, I was like, I will do whatever you say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think the reason I talk about this so much on the podcast is it's my one regret. Like I, I have a huge regret and I didn't advocate as much as I could have for Bane. And I'm okay saying that because it it is what it is. I can't change it. But like, listen to yourself. Because I remember having those feelings. I remember like driving down the road, bawling. And I was like, 
he's not okay. And I'm not okay with the answers I'm getting. But then I go talk to somebody. I'm like, you're the professional. Okay. Yeah. Right. And they are, they are the professional. They went to school. They, they are smarter than me, yeah. but I had the feeling. Listen to that feeling. Yeah. yeah. So well, hundred percent listen to that feeling, mm-hmm. you know, and like you said, there's nothing you can do to change that. Mm-hmm. However, there's a way to do it and be like, I don't appreciate your opinion. Can you help me find someone that can help me find the answers? Mm-hmm. And there is a way to do it. I feel like there's a totally right. respectful way, yes. mm-hmm. but I don't feel like the us as moms, because we aren't educated that way. It's, I know what my son is or my daughter. I know what they are. I know what's right and what's wrong. And something is very wrong here. And someone mm-hmm. better listen to me. And you know, it, it's just all you can do as a mom. Yeah. How did Stetson react when Easton got out of surgery? So I thought that for sure it would be kind of a traumatic thing for when he saw him after the first surgery, he had, you know, gained a lot of water weight and did not look like a two month old baby. Um, but for after the transplant, I kind of peeked my head around and, um, he looked amazing. He looked just like he was sleeping with a tube in his mouth. So I told Rusty to let him come in and he walked in and just, he just was so happy for him and he wasn't awake yet, but he was trying to wake up. And so Stetson went up on his bed and they're like, he should not be up on there. And I'm like, he's fine. And again, you know, mother's just kind of taking that front runner. I was just like, he's going to sit up there with him. And he sat up there with him and he's like, it's okay, brother. You can wake up. I'm here. I'm here. And I got you. He went to that Mm Build-A-Bear and got him like a little, um, a little stuffed animal to have. And he literally just sat there with him. He wanted to, then he goes, he needs to blow bubbles. And they're like, he's not supposed to even be awake yet. And as he started waking up, you know, the nurses were like, yeah, he shouldn't be awake yet. We need to figure out what to do. They got permission, took out his feeding, uh, sorry, the breathing tube. And Stetson's like, he wants bubbles. That's what he wants. And I'm like, Stetson, he's like, that's what he wants. He's going to want bubbles. And he was sitting there blowing bubbles with them. We have photos of them blowing bubbles. But, you know, Stetson was always, and I've told him this, he's the reason that Easton survived as long as he did. I really don't think if he didn't have Stetson that he wouldn't have thrived as much. And I don't think he'd be here today. And I can say that a hundred percent, you know, we talked about him, you know, kind of going with him the hamper and, and doing all those things and just playing with him. But he would literally be at the hospital and Rusty would come down and he'd bring Stetson after school and he would come in and we'd joke with the nurse to bring a cot and well, we can't have people in here. And I'm like, okay, but they'd bring the cot in and Stetson would sleep next to him and they would sleep together and he would bring him cars and Play-Doh And then the sweetest thing happened, um, it would be the day after when we transferred floors. So you go to the immunocompromised floor after um, when they are out of recovery, which is like the cancer patients. So it's kind of reminds me of like a, when I say a jail, it's because they tell you, you are not to come out of this room except for when you get weighed. Is that clear? I mean, they kind of make you feel like, okay, it's a lockdown. (laughs) But really, you got to think about it. These other kids are fighting for their lives. And so was Easton because, again, he was still immunocompromised. So they're all on the floor with these cancer patients, and they are not to be in the halls. Well, Stetson was so used to being with Easton in the halls, and they'd play. Well, Stetson walks out when the nurses leave, and I'm putting stuff away. And he goes and hijacks a bike that they have (laughs) around the corner. And he brings it, and I come out of the bathroom, which... Everyone knows too, you're not supposed to use your kids' bathroom, but I'm like, I'm not leaving. I can't leave. And I'm like, where are my kids? He had his 
um, IV <laughs> and he had him and I'm like Stetson and he had him riding a bike all along the halls. And the one nurse goes, I'm going to pretend I'm not seeing this, but you need to get them back in their room. And she is just a smiling and Stetson goes, he is just fine. He needs to ride a bike. <laughs> and he had gotten new shoes. So he put uh-huh. his shoes on him. He goes, you can't bend over. So he puts his shoes on and he goes, we're ready now. Mm-hmm. So he has like these little shorts, brand new Nike shoes from his brother. And he gets on and Stetson's just, and he just, and we have it. And it's a big old grin. And Stetson's just like, he's good now. He doesn't need to ride his bike. Or get, and I'm like, careful getting him off. Like, but it's a brother's way, right? Uh-huh, he's just, yeah. he just knew what Easton needed. And, you know, they, they would sit and like we talked about, he slept with him. There's all these little things, but I don't think people credit enough with siblings. Yeah. Because it helps them to thrive. And if it weren't for Stetson, I can tell you that it would be a totally different story for Easton. I'd probably be doing the opposite. Um, But I'm really grateful for Stetson and what he did. And I know that people that have been in in my family and know, they know that Stetson was a big part of that. So I think we definitely need to remember siblings go through it as much as anybody else does, if not more, because they have to carry that. But they're also the ones that, that carry the most smiles and laughs and somehow Stetson just knew how to do that for him. And Aww. I'm always grateful for that. Mm-hmm. I love that. Yep. So you are so amazing advocating <laughs> for organ donation and just trying to spread awareness. Like you said, I love that you said, if I can make one person choose to donate organs from hearing my story. Yep, I've, just one. Just I've one. done my job. Yep. How else have you made lemonade out of all this lemons you've been given? Well, you know, I thought about that question and I... The interesting thing for me is um, I, I'm i trying to live each day for what it is. I, I realize I have my good and bad days. Us as moms, we have our good ones when we lay our head down. And I'm like, man, I nailed it today. <laughs> yep. I was an awesome mom today. And then there's days I'm like, I'm going to do this tomorrow, and I'm going to do this tomorrow, and I'm going to be better, right? But I think the biggest thing is is life is what we make it. And I'm going to do my best to live my life the way that I want to make it and for my kids. Because my biggest thing is if I, if I were to die tomorrow, if I'm a good mom and my kids think I'm a good mom, I need no more success than that. And so for me, with all the things I've had to watch and, and go through and the trials of watching one of my kids be sick, but it also, I think it's really important to remember is that their siblings go through the same thing. Yeah. And so I never, ever want to discredit, you know, Swayze never understood that because one Swayze wasn't born yet, but Stetson, I think people forget about the ones that were there and that had to go through it. So I just try every day for us to just live our best life and just be as happy as we can, because as we all know, tomorrow isn't promised. And I just, you know, people kind of joke around about the whole social media thing. Yeah. And I'm not putting anyone down, okay? But when I had social media for that month of being in the hospital to tell people how Easton was, I kept on it, and I hadn't been on it, but I kept it. And when I got home, I never felt more depressed, more awful. Because one, I sat and I I literally compared myself to every person. And I thought, my life is perfect the way it is. It's exactly the way I've prayed for the last five years for it to be is all of us under the same roof, all of us alive and healthy. And I don't, I can't explain it enough that 
We have to just choose what we want for our life and it's okay. So for me, it's just trying to live in just today. I don't look at tomorrow. I don't look at yesterday. I just want to live today and try to be the best mom I can and have my kids be as happy as they can, which we all know teenagers, that does not happen. (laughs) But in general, right? Like it may sound corny, but I'm just trying today, just today and move forward. But there is this saying that um, is next to my um, sink and I try to look at it. It says, I still remember when I prayed for the things I have now. And it's just a reminder for days and, you know, months and years, I prayed for so many things and my life is exactly the way that I prayed for it to be. But there's all those little loopholes, right? All the things that we had to get through and the hurt and the guilt and all those things, we still have to all work through them. But we need to remember that certain things that we pray for or that we want when they're in that moment, we just need to be grateful for that one moment when it's all right there. Yeah. Yes, I love that. Oh, I've loved listening to you today and hearing your story. Oh, and thank about you. Easton, I can't believe it's been 10 years. I know. And he's Just, 15. He's going to be driving soon. So oh, watch out. <laughs> where does time go? That's awesome. Well, he's yeah. taller than me. I mean, look at your boys. I oh, saw that and I'm gosh. like, doesn't How take... does that happen? I know. Well, I was going to say with you, it's not hard for them to get taller yeah. than you. Mom. I know. And you'll be shaking your finger at looking up at him. Yeah. But, yeah. but I have thoroughly enjoyed watching my children grow up. Yeah. I really have. It's, you know, I struggled at first when he was, my oldest was a teenager. I'm like, yeah. oh, I'm scared. I'm nervous. And, you know, yeah. the hormones and all the things, but I've loved it. It's yeah. like having a best friend. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's the best parts of life, but the hardest, right? Yeah. Like so, when you see all these new moms and they're like, I'm so scared to have this baby. I'm like, it's going to be the hardest, be the, the most trying, but it's going to be the best. The best. Mm-hmm. It's kind of just, I feel like what yeah. life's supposed to be about is for us to be able just to watch that and yeah. be like, I helped a little part in that. Yeah. I had a little part. And in- I'm trying to be more present in everything. Like someone said, don't you miss your kids being little? And I'm always like, I miss my little kids. They yeah. needed me. They yeah. wanted me. And now they're just independent. And they're like, I, I enjoy the time that we're in. If, if we're in the time that they need me and they're little, I'm, I'm there and I'm enjoying it. I'm not thinking about when they're a baby. I'm not thinking yep. about the future. Yep. So I'm trying to enjoy each of my kids and each of their stages. And I'm grateful I get to because yeah. I don't have Taisley here yeah. to enjoy that time. So I yeah. try not to take my kids and who they are and what stage they're in for granted at any point. Yeah. And so I think we all just need that reminder. Like, even if we're in a hard stage, love it. Live it up. Be grateful yep. for it. Because like you said, tomorrow's not promised. Yeah. You know, and you'd rather be fighting and arguing with teenagers mm-hmm. than not, right? Hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. So, ah, uh, well, I love you. Oh, Thanks for being here. I love here. you guys too. Thanks. Thank for you for having me. Yes. I'm so excited, and I I do hope that just one person figures that out and mm-hmm. just has a conversation as they're eating dinner tonight. If so, yeah. then mark yeah. off today that I've done my good deed for the day. Yes. Agreed. Yes. Yeah. And every time someone listens. Yes. Yeah. Thank exactly. you. Thanks for being here, guys. Make sure to go show. Holly Joe, some love on our social media, on our posts, and thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. Make sure to leave us a rate and review wherever you are listening. You can also email us at makingthemonadepodcast1 at gmail.com. You can also find us on Instagram at makinglemonade.podcast or Facebook at Making Lemonade with Wit and Kills. You can also find out more about my foundation, Bane's Legacy, at 
Facebook and Instagram at Bane's Legacy and www.baneslegacy.com. And you can find out more about my foundation. You can find us on social media at Tay Tough and our website is taytaytough.org. 